Hello, hello. No, no, don't leave. You did not click on the wrong button. You are indeed on Alex and Dar's podcast. The podcast that took the Bayesian world by a storm. Learning Bayesian statistics. And that Barack Obama wants deemed the best podcast in the whole galaxy. Or maybe Alex said that. I don't remember. Alex made us discover new methods, new ideas, but mostly new people in the Bayesian world. But what do we really know about him? Does he even really exist? Well, to find this out, I put on my French's beret, a baguette under my arm, and went undercover to try to find him. And I did find him. So today, for a special episode, I will be the one asking questions and making bad jokes with a French accent. But before letting him in, here's what I got on him so far. By day, Alex is a Bayesian modeler at PMC Labs Consultancy. By night, he does not fight crime, but he's an open source enthusiast and co-contributor to BIMC and RVs. Alex obviously loves statistics and loves building models and studying election and human behavior. And when he's not working, he loves hiking, exercising, meditating, and reading nerdy books and novels. He also loves chocolate a bit too much, but he doesn't like talking about it. He does prefer eating it. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 57, recorded January the 13th, 2022. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.com. That's learnbasestats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbasestats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. welcome to struggling with bayesian statistics thank you for accepting my invitation even though we're on your competing podcast so you're here because <laughs> you are interested are interested in statistical modeling are you pretty famous with your podcast in the world of statistical modeling but you didn't start on that path, did you? You've got quite of an interesting background. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, interesting. I don't know, but sinuous, that's for sure. And yeah, thanks a lot for having me on your podcast, Rémi. I learned a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I heard a lot about learning Bayesian statistics and, and, and I'm like, I'm very happy to, to be a guest now. I'm honored should I say. So yeah, thanks a lot for having me. And uh, I'm flattered that um, you think my background is interesting. <laughs> so uh, what's basically what's my origin story, let's say. Yeah, I absolutely didn't start by nerdy topics and so on. 
I come from a family where computers are basically the enemy. <laughs> no, so, oh, wow. <laughs> no, I, I'm exaggerating. If my mother and my father are listening to that and understanding, they won't be happy. No, it's not the enemy, but like, we're not particular, particularly technology savvy in the family. So I didn't start coding at 12, like some guests on these very podcast. Like 90% of the guests. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I started coding actually super late. I was 27 when I first heard about Python and, and what we could do. I first did business school in France, traveled a bit thanks to that, went a bit to the US and lived in Germany for a while to do political science. And actually, while in Germany, I had the opportunity to write a book on the US. So that was a geopolitics of the US mm -hmm. and the book is called like that, like very originally. And so while writing that book, it was during the summer of 2016. Uh, of course, there is no famous presidential campaign in the US took place during that time. And while writing that book, I discovered all the different models that they have in the US, especially 538. Mm -hmm. And the nerd in me was awake. You know, I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. This at least helps people to say less crap, at least have more data-driven narratives, even though those narratives can still be crap. At least it's a bit more data-driven and as objective as we can get. And that's what I want. And at the time, I also was missing math and stats, uh, which I, I studied quite a lot before business school. And, and then in mm -hmm. business school, we don't do that anymore. So that was yeah, answering a lot of my, of my questions at the time. And so I, I was like, okay, I have to do that in France now. now. And so I started doing that in 2017. A very, very, okay. very basic model. So that was four years ago. Yeah. yeah. Five years ago. Almost wow. five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I started like diving into Python, building the website on Python to, to display the graphs that I was building with the model. Very, very basic model. Now that I see I mean, it, it's yeah. like, it's like, I have some empathy for that model, but it's a very, it's a very baby model, but it's, uh, I like it nonetheless. Now you'll need to release on GitHub and we'll put the, we'll put the link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's how it all started. And I, I started diving very deep into intubation stats thanks to that model. And then after that, I started entering open source and so on, but I, I think you have some questions about that. So I'll let you um, talk. Now. Yeah. How exactly did you get, did you stumble upon, did you stumble upon Bayesian statistics while doing this? Because I don't think that 538 is explicitly Bayesian. I'm actually not even sure uh, the model's Bayesian. And um, like, what did you find? What was the first paper or book or blog article you saw that mentioned using Bayesian statistics for that? So I actually remember that and I hate reading academic papers. So I'm highly doubt that I found that in an academic paper, but oh no. Yeah, I did read uh, Drew Linzer's paper, I think from 2013 about the dynamic Bayesian model to forecast the election. But at the time, 
I was such a beginner that I didn't understand anything in this model. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah. I just understood a bit of the structure and was like, okay, I think that's what I need to do. That's the model. I think I that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, yeah, but I cannot do that neither programmatically nor statistically. I don't understand that. So I'm going to go with something much simpler. I think that's where I started hearing back about Bayesian stats because I already knew about Bayesian stats in my undergrad. But yeah, 538, like it's weird, like the, he, Nate Silver is always advocating Bayesian stats, but we don't know whether the model is actually really Bayesian or not. And, um, but I did hear a bit through that and just it was very natural. Uh, I remember that only like that one main framework of statistics allowed you to estimate uncertainty. And I, understood very fast that I needed to estimate uncertainty, that it was quite dumb to just have point estimates because uncertainty is super high, especially in French elections where you have a lot of candidates. And so they they can be very close. And, and here it's really the uncertainty that counts. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely talk more about political science and what Bayesian statistics have to do with it during this episode. Yeah. I see that it's actually, I'm going to start with that and then we'll get to what you're currently doing. I mean, it's part of it. I saw that you released a course that's called Intuitive Bayesian Statistics with Thomas Fiki and Ravin Kumar. And it's pretty interesting because you learned Bayesian statistics, like you, you don't have a quantitative background like most people do, like even though even though they're not statisticians, most people come from biology, from physics, from, I mean, from many other quantitative fields, and you don't. So it's very interesting that you wrote that, that you wrote that class. And I guess my question is, what was the most difficult thing for you when you started learning Bayesian statistics? Yes. And what got you unstuck? What, how, like, what was the most difficult and how did you get unstuck, basically? Yeah. So there are, I think there are two things, one very specific and one more general. I'll start with a specific, well, like I remember the most confusing concept for me was forward sampling. Like it took so long for me to understand forward sampling. So prior predictive distribution and posterior predictive distributions, because Bayes theorem is super easy to understand. The intuition is super fast. Interpreting the results and the, the HDI, the intervals and so on, it's super easy. But then I was like, what's that? posterior predictive stuff, like I don't understand the difference with the posterior and, and prior and prior predictive. I was like, what's that? And it took me quite a long time and, and several exposures to different resources. The first book I wrote, I wrote, no, I read Osvaldo Martin's book yeah. who introduced me to all that. I had, which is very accessible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Really, really good book. And I always, I had a, a first understanding of that, but this was still fuzzy. And then I really understood that concept, I think, through uh, Richard McElrath's book, Statistical yeah. Rethinking. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think there is a causal link here. Like maybe if I had read the two books in different orders, I would have had the, the eureka moment with Osvaldo's book. Because something I often say is that usually when you start learning something, especially Bayesian stats, your favorite book is going to be the second one you read. Yeah. Not the first one. The second one. Because the first one you won't understand a lot. My first one was BDA3. So oh I my God. I did not understand a single thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what yeah. is that? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, but I kind of like it. it kind of sounds cool. So I'm going yeah. to pick up another book. And <laughs> Listeners, don't do that at home. Like, don't, don't, don't do start that with don't try it. alone in your I'm, room. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. Don't do this. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't do that at home. <laughs> we did it for you, don't. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's an excellent book, though, and you should get it once you're familiar with Bayesian statistics because it's a great reference. But don't start with this. Yeah. But it's mind-boggling that the thing that you found difficult was forward sampling and not sampling from the posterior distribution. I mean, oh, and maybe and so on. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't bothered by that. I was like, okay, that stuff I know is very difficult, (laughs) but I trust the guys who are much smarter and better than me that this is doing a good job. I mean, like Betancourt, Gelman, the PyMC guys and so on, they say that works That's that, and, and you should trust that unless there are some warnings and so on. Okay, I'm going to trust them. <laughs> and you don't trust them with forward sampling. <laughs> no, I do. I just don't understand. I just like, I was like, what's that? That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. And now do you understand it? Yeah. Yo, yeah. Now I love that. And I love explaining that to, to, to beginners. Okay. So explain, like, give, give us the elevators, the elevator pitch of yeah. why you should look at forward sampling. Cause <laughs> I mean, posterior predictive, you can explain in two sentences and then, mm. you know, maybe why you would do that with yeah. so predictive. I'm going to tell you how I understood that. And that that's going to lead me to the general point yeah. I wanted to make about like about what was the hardest for me. It's so. How I under, ended up understanding that is poster, uh, the function to do poster predictive sampling in PyMC3 was messy in the sense that it was not a first class citizen. It was not originally yeah. in PyMC3. So often you would have shape issues when doing sampling, when sampling poster predictive sampling. Okay. Yeah, that's true. That was actually a good thing because often in my model, PM.sample poster predictive would break. And so I would have to implement poster predictive sampling on my own. And oh, wow. then I understood how to do that because I had to do that on my own. And that's where- With SciPy? Is that what you, is that how Yeah, you well, it? you can use SciPy oh, wow. or NumPy or PyMC. You just, basically you just sample from the distributions that yeah. are in the model. And once you understand that, it's basically you have to rebuild the model, but instead of having uh, distributions that you want to infer, you have those distributions, now you sample from them. Just, it's just that. And that's how I understood forward sampling. I was like, oh, okay, that's why it's forward. And the inference is backwards because we go from data to parameters, whereas here in forward sampling, we go from parameters to data. That's simple. And that's how I understood it. Just because there was this good function in PyMC, but that often broke. By the way, in PyMC4 now, it's much more, it's much more robust. So most people won't, won't have to do that, I guess. But yeah, that's how I understood it. And more generally, the pain point was just start coding. Don't try and understand everything. Just start coding your model and do it. And you will understand why doing it. And that's also the spirit I got from starting working in open source. So that's the best decision I took in my life was to support <laughs> statistical rethinking from R to PyMC3 and starting contributing to the PyMC resources repo. And there I had the incredible, generous help from uh, Osvaldo Martin and Ravin Kumar, who helped me a lot going through the exercises, porting that to PyMC, porting the course. And I made a ton of mistakes there. They helped me. I fixed them. And that's really how I jump-started my, my learning when I started open source, like contributing to open source that way. I remember you were everywhere on the PyMC uh, discourse at the time. It's like True. whenever someone asked a question, Alex and Dora was here to answer your question. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, that was also a way I learned is that I went on the discourse and 
at first it was to just understand because Junpeng Lao is like an amazing wizard. So he had like all these solutions that I was reading and was like, okay, I didn't understand that. Or I was like, oh, that's awesome. How did you get that idea? And then at what point I was like, oh, okay, I can answer that question. I'm going to try and answer that. And maybe I'm wrong and Junpeng will correct me. And now I'm less wrong. So yeah, that was also a big part. But it, and, it and that's basically the it. general point was, I think the most difficult was starting doing it and daring doing it because you know you're not good, you know you're a beginner and you're afraid of that. But the solution to that is actually to just be super open about that and just go contribute to open source, contribute to the discourse and make mistakes. And actually the community is so welcoming and safe in Bayesian stats, it is still. Yeah, that really jumpstarts your learning. And Eric Ma, actually, who is a fellow PyMC developer and friend, and also came on this podcast, right, has a very good image for that because he uses that to learn a lot of things. He says that he always has an open garage when he learns something. And so he always blogs about the stuff he's learning, even though he's still like a very beginner in that, because that's how best he learns basically yeah and you can i mean now we have bears and blogs we have twitter so you can just you know you can just do something and publish it immediately and then get feedback and i guess that you're right the secret is to get some really terrible code out there and realize that no one you know that you're still alive two days later and uh, that no one will judge you for it so yeah and the community is really great so most of the time you won't like you won't have any shit thrown at so, you it's, it's really so, an amazing community. So take advantage of it. So you'd say the secret is code and publish your code. Yeah. 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 Like do it, you know, to just do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like someone said. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess that your course is taking that approach, approach yeah. first. Yeah, right? definitely. The course we have with Ravin and Thomas. So first it's amazing to develop because I guess you know that like teaching is always a huge challenge and that's how you learn even more, yep. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. And the vision we have for the course with, with the guys is um, always tr try to start with the application and then explain what happened. And the way I think about that is like a Nagata Christie novel. <laughs> so when you read a Nagata Christie novel, you have the, all these details and so on. And at the end, you understand who the murderer is because she helps you do that. But when you get there, very often you're like, oh my God, I, yeah, I should have seen, exactly. I should have known. I could <laughs> I have, have guessed, guessed that from page 10. You go back <laughs> there and you see, oh my God, it's already all in there. How did you do that? It's amazing. And when you reread the novel, you're like, oh, there is all these clues. It's obvious. Yeah. yeah they're everywhere. <laughs> it's obvious and it's mind blowing. And that's the approach we want to have with the course is to help you go through Bayesian examples and models. And then you'll see, okay, Let's look at that concept and so on. But look at that. You already know that concept. You already used it just now. Instead of going the other way around, which is like, here's the concept and now let's apply it. That's a very good pitch is learning intuitive Bayesian statistics as good as in the Gakristi novel. If we can get there, <laughs> I, I'd be like, I'd be super happy if we can get that. Like, that'd be awesome. Okay, so it's cool. So that's one of the many things that you're doing. What do you do today, like, you know, with your days for a living and how is it related to Bayesian statistics? Oh, yeah. So it's very much related to Bayesian statistics. <laughs> 
<laughs> because I wanted that. So for quite a, a few months and years, I've really tried to have a work where I only do Bayesian stats or at least only do statistical modeling. Uh, that wasn't always easy and it was sinuous like my graduation, my graduate studies, but I did get there. And today, so I have, I founded with Thomas and Ravin and, and Luciano Pass and, and, and Adrian Zabolt at the very beginning, we started PyMC Labs, so which is a, a Bayesian modeling consulting company based on PyMC, of course, we are all uh, PyMC developers in the, in the company. And yeah, we help, basically we help our clients with their modeling troubles and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, questions. And that's very fun because they often come with very challenging problems. Sometimes it's really in your ballpark and you're like, oh, okay, I know that's my personality. I know how to do that. But also often it's okay. I didn't even know Bayesian stats were used in, in that industry, but that's super interesting. Let's Let's get into that. The challenge is the challenge is is really interesting. So let's do that. And yeah, basically, so my work is working with Bayesian models every day, uh, learning a lot because that's the beauty of statistical modeling is that you like every case is different and you have to always adapt and learn and also contributing to open source, which is like for all of us in Pi at PyMT Labs is super important. And what we're trying to do is to integrate really the fact of contributing to open source with our work. And that's, that's really something we, we are very passionate about. And I'm super happy about that because recently when such situation happened where we developed, we started developing a helper function for a client on how to choose priors and their constraints. So for instance, if you have a beta distribution, it's super hard to, yeah. to find the parameters, right? You have to do manual trial and errors. Because experts are never going to tell you, you should take alpha equals 0 0.732 and beta equals to 5.7. Yeah, it's like... It's just, that's not how humans work. Yeah, and <laughs> so the beta is, is amazing because it's very versatile, but precisely because of that, it's very hard to to choose the parameters. And so for that client, we developed a function where you could, you could say, okay, I want 95% of the mass, for instance, between 0.1 and 0.4. And now give me the parameters that correspond to that. And so we start. Which is, yeah. Yeah. I, Which is how humans think, right? Yeah, exactly. In terms of priors. Yeah. So that's, uh, and that makes also priority citation from experts much easier because you can just ask them, okay, what do you think is a good, is a, rely um, a credible conversion rate and then that's okay like you don't need to tell me the parameters of the beta distribution which you don't even know so we did that first version then i developed that more with luciano for a workshop because we also teach workshop with PyMC labs in companies and that that's always also super interesting because why teaching i learn a lot and then after that we were like okay that that function is super helpful let's put it in PyMC. And, and then I could work on that. That wasn't much, much longer PR than I expected. Yeah, it's always is. <laughs> yeah, my God. No, that's why I was like, okay, I think in two, com in two commits, it's done. And then after 60 commits, it's still Famous done. last words. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. And then I was at 60 commits and was like, oh my God, it's still not merged. What have I done? But now it's merged. And so in the, in the, in the coming PyMC4, Beta two, beta. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're gonna 
you're going to have access to this uh, pm.find constraint prior uh, function. And yeah, so basically that was an example to to tell you that, yeah, we also try to do that as much as possible with PyMC Labs. And when we can do that, it, it feels really good. I was super happy to to work on that and have that developed with the clients. Also, that's, that's super awesome to also have clients who have open source at their who like open source and, and are there to contribute back. That's cool. I'm sure that people, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very useful feature. I mean, it's interesting that you get uh, actually problems that people are actually dealing with on the battlefield. So it's not just academic problems. Yeah. You can bring them back to the library. And I think that's a very interesting and that's a very useful feature. Yeah. So, you know, working for this consultancy for PyMC Labs, you are interested interacting, I guess, with many different companies. And I guess there are different levels of adoption of patient statistics. And so I think you must have an opinion. I mean, I have an opinion about that, but you must have a real better informed, a better posterior. Uh, <laughs> I have a very good posterior. A posterior distribution on this, which is what do you think would help to get a wider adoption of Bayesian method? Is that possible? Is that desirable? And what would help today? Like what is the thing that people could do yeah. to make it easier to transition to Bayesian methods? Yeah. I know it's a heavy question. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a white question. question. <laughs> such a white question. No, so, so to start with a very specific thing, I think most of the time the issue people have, including me when you're modeling, is basically the workflow and not losing sight of why and what you're modeling. Because when you start digging deep into the model and how to choose the priors and why it's not converging and why is there these 10 divergences still, you know, it's just like, ah, I still have that warning about 25% effective sample size and so on. So you can get caught on in like very deep stuff and losing sight of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then like, yeah, you, you lose in your head, you lose the fact that, okay, I'm there in the workflow. What should I do next? So that kind of almost automated, not thinking, but process, that's usually very hard. And that's what I see in companies and also from beginners is that they get overwhelmed by the quantity of things that have to be learned. Yes, but I mean, look at the alternative. It's not like classic stats don't require any learning, but so you have to learn and, and spend time on that, but the automation can be improved. Yes. Okay. So you think there's a part that's educational and you think there's a part that's like more like tooling that's missing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what would that be? What would that look like? Yeah. If someone's listening today and wants to write terrible code, like we suggested earlier. Yeah. What <laughs> so the education part, I mean, it's it's way longer and so on, but of course we need more of that at university. Basically, we need more Bayesian stats course at university. That's what Aubrey Clayton, for instance, talked about, about in in episode fifty one. I think David Spiegelhalter also talked about that. In also talked 50. about that, yeah. Mm. So of course there is that. I'm never gonna say we don't need that. And on the tool part, I think what Aki Vetari, Paul Bertner, and people at Alto also are working on, which is an automated software workflow basically is very interesting. So the idea is you start running a model on count data, for instance, but you're using a normal likelihood. Then the software would tell you, huh, are you sure you want to do that? Have you thought about the Bernoulli distribution, for instance? 
because that's more that's more appropriate most of the time you know so like having a small you know that small statistician instead of having it like close to you because there is not enough Bayesian statistics. You have it on your computer, you know. I'm laughing because we've all done that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the point. I mean, even knowingly sometimes. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, don't bother me with that software. I know I'm a terrible modeler. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and so like that'd be awesome because often people are overwhelmed by, okay, yeah. what is the good prior? And I always answer, there is no good prior. <laughs> there is no one best prior. Like, try something and then you'll see. Most of the time, you end up choosing the same thing because yeah. some distributions are awesome. So you use them most of the time, but sometimes you will use something else. So there is no one best prior, but people want that. And so, yeah, having a more guided workflow and automa automatically guided workflow, I think would be incredibly valuable. So that the second thing is making forward sampling checks much easier. So like prior predictive checks and posterior predictive checks. But that's going to be the case in PyMCV version four, no? <laughs> Don't worry. It's Isn't that something it's, that's... It's called PyMC now. And just the, ma the major... Okay. The, now it's normal. The name of the package is PyMC and the version number is just 4.0 point blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm sorry, I got I got lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to say that's going to be uh, the case. Uh, yeah, much easier in yeah. PyMC when the version four was released. Yeah, the version four is actually released. You can already download. You can already do conda install PyMC, and that will get you on your computer PyMC four point point B one, so beta one point B one. Okay, yeah. At the time of this recording, and beta two is really in the works, almost almost done, and so you can already run PyMC four. On your machine, and I already use PyMC for some clients in at PyMC Labs, so you can that's already cool. use that. So yeah, that's much easier. What I was talking about is visualization. Is forward sampling. You need most often like customized plots, right, for your model to really understand that. And yeah, so you will never be able to have a library with all the possible plots. But a, a good thing, I think would be kind of a software-assisted Bayesian workflow for the model, but then for the plots. So like, oh, I see you have multinomial data and it's a time series. Usually these kind of plots are useful. And if you also want to check the robustness of your inference, these kind of plots are useful. Just that, you know. Okay. That'd be and, and so that's, great. yeah, that'd be great. That'd be definitely great. So that would be more for like beginners slash intermediate users. Can you identify actually, I mean, it's, I like to ask that to people who actually, you know, like see a lot of companies using Bayesian methods, because you always feel alone when you're Bayesian in the industry. Usually you feel like you're the only one working on this thing, but you're not. Yeah, <laughs> you're not. Alex is here to tell you that you're not exactly. alone. Okay. <laughs> you can call me anytime if you're lonely. <laughs> and, uh, and so do you think there's tooling that's missing in the open source in the open source world for like more advanced users, like stuff that companies uh, who contact you need, but doesn't exist. So for advanced users, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think there is a lot of things missing for advanced users because by definition, they like, like I don't know if they like, but they often do their stuff you know, on their own. So what I see is mostly missing is things helping you with this. So you are ver like, you know that very, very well. I don't know that as well as you do. So this, all this SRA graph computation, 
craft manipulation and tensor stuff for me sometimes still is very weird. And so like to me having guidance on that, I don't really know in which form would be super helpful. Is that a subtle way to tell us that we should write documentation on <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it was that subtle. I'm not, but yeah, thank you for the compliment. Very subtle. I mean, <laughs> I guess the, the SR team will will listen to this yeah. podcast and take notice. But yeah, no. I guess maybe more. I mean, there is documentation to be fair, and uh, and it's quite. I mean, it was enough for me. But maybe more, you know, sort of a general overview. Of yeah. How these things work and. Actually, why you need something like Apple, exactly. uh, the new PPL, and what it does that you couldn't do before. Yeah, exactly. Like, what is it? Why would you need that? And when does it work best, basically? That would be something I'd need. Because that's what PyMC is based on now. Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. And that's why forward sampling is faster. It's because it's yeah. based on this. And uh, Yeah, exactly. Thanks to Brandon's work. Yeah, and that's where that's where like I should clearly give a shout out to all, all the people mostly involved in that. So Brendan Willard, who had like all that vision like already one year and a half ago, and also Ricardo Vieira. Ricardo, yeah. Like who like spends so much time on both on SRA, Apple, PyMC. So I was gonna say I need to invite him on the podcast, but you need to invite him on, on this podcast. I will need on yeah. this podcast. I don't know what you're doing, man. He he should have been there before Apprendre me. Les statistiques bayesiennes. Yeah. <laughs> In French, yeah. So yeah, I mean Ricardo definitely need to come on the podcast and, and tell us about all that. Uh, Michel Ostego also, who was already on the yeah. podcast and, and works a lot on, on all of that. So all the thanks all to all those folks that's thanks to us that to them that that we have all, all that. And yeah, so all that stuff like... And uh, developing tooling for more advanced users, yeah. Yeah, so how does it fit together and so on? And also, like, basically a tutorial about how to write a custom operation in SRA that you use in your in your PyMC model. Alex can see that I'm taking notes while I'm asking <laughs> questions. <laughs> I, I think the note says, don't ever invite Alex again on the podcast. <laughs> okay. okay, so now let's talk about, I mean, you started with political science. You did political science for a while. You went to Bayesian statistics, thanks to that. And now for a while, I mean, you kind of never stopped. Yeah. You've had a project that's been going on for a while that you're going to talk to us about now. It's called Pulse Position, which is a very good, uh, a very good name, by the way. It's pretty good. I'm sure you're really, <laughs> you're really proud of it. Yeah. And, uh, and I like so, puns, can you, so, you know, of course, but I like that. That one's pretty good. I think it's, I think it's pretty good. And so for how long have you been doing that? Why did you start? How many, was it just you? Was it other people? I mean, just tell us all about it. Yeah, when and why I started, I talked about that already. Yes. So it was in 2017. and So that's how you discovered the Bayesian statistics was actually at the same time. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. that's because of that, that I went back into Bayesian stats and that I went into programming for the first time in my life. And, and like also for the first time in my life, really enjoying statistics because I was like, oh, that's awesome. The computer is doing all the computation. So this, the things that I don't like and that also humans are not are not that good at and, com and computers are much better at. And I can just draw samples from the distributions and have that as the plot in front of me. That's, that's magic. So really, the, I started doing that just to learn. And I saw that the small model that I had in 2017 got some traction, not big, but 
some traction. And so I was like, hey, yeah, so that's good. What I thought was needed in France has at least a small audience. And I think it should be there in the landscape. The problem I had, and I still have a bit, but less now, is that it doesn't bring you any money. <laughs> so like, <laughs> it's a huge, hugely time-consuming activity because political science and electoral forecasting is super hard and takes a lot of time, but nobody is ready to pay for that. And you also take a lot of crap on Twitter, like the community is really not welcoming. <laughs> this one is not very welcoming. As the Bayesian stat is. So you know, at one point I was even considering like just letting it go after the European 2019 European elections, where I had a more interesting model, more complex Bayesian model. I open sourced everything and so on. And there I was like, yeah, I'm tired of all those people like criticizing the model without even looking at it or without even like taking the time to understand what a model is and just like being like, oh yeah, but all models are wrong. So we, I guess we should just uh, say that uh, whatever I think is true is as true as whatever model says, you know? So I was like, yeah, I'm tired of that shit and I don't need people like that in my life. <laughs> so I should probably quit that stuff. But you did not. Yeah, I did for a while. But you know, it's like the mafia in, it, is it in Scarface? I don't remember, you know, like when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. They pulled me back in, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so I went back to that because, so first <laughs> you, you helped me come back to that because you were like super motivated and so on. And so that, that helped me get very motivated. So th thanks for that. And also the, the statistical challenge is interesting. I have to say like these models are, complicated and that's why it's very interesting because they are never perfect they are never finished you can always learn something new from that and i started like having the same spirit as i had at the beginning which was okay it's my geek nerd sandbox where i get to test some new ideas for models that maybe i will end up using for clients for pymc labs that's also PyMC Labs helped help me get back into that because then it was less of an opportunity cost. It was more like that's a training. That's kind of like, you know, kind of like fundamental research, if you want. It's the you try stuff out, often it doesn't pan out, but sometimes it will, and then it it's awesome. And then translates to everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And so and surely the the model we worked on for the coming 2022 elections. Uh, was really that I really wanted to. So I had that vision of the model since 2017 of a dynamic Bayesian, uh, Bayesian model that I could never do because I wasn't enough of a good statistician. But now I can do that. And we have all these Gaussian processes to model the timeline of the election. And these Gaussian processes are hierarchically related between elections. And so you have one GP per party per election, and each of these GP is regularized, actively regularized by another GP for each party. And it's crazy, right? Like I never thought I would, I would write such a model. And that helped me understand a lot. Okay. How do GP work? What's important for a GP? And spoiler alert, priors are super important. Priors. Yeah. I want to state for the record that I was against the GPs until I realized there's a link with Gaussian processes. <laughs> with the, sorry, with stochastic processes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once you realize, oh, okay, there is a bridge there and Gaussian processes are actually a 
like a generalization of what is it, Brownian motion or Brownian bridge. With the right kernels, it's actually equivalent to yeah. random walk. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the random bridge is one example. Yeah. But yes, of the things you can model, but in some cases, it's actually equivalent to modeling a stochastic process, which makes a lot of sense when you're talking about opinion polls. So yeah, so that's how I got. Yeah. And so that's how you convinced me. <laughs> yeah. For the record, so yeah, I love GPs because they are magic and they are like beautiful. And even the math is beautiful. Oh, wow. But also it was grounded in domain knowledge in the sense that the classical way to do that, that kind of dynamic Bayesian models, especially with the Linzer paper, for instance, who was quite seminal in that in that sense is using random walks and multi multivariate random walks. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that public opinion is like is a real random walk in the sense that it it's less dispersed than a random walk. Public opinion takes more time and there is momentum in public opinion. Mm -hmm. And so if you want it's a random walk but with a wider with a wider mm -hmm. innovation. Like the innovation is slower. It's kind of an IR process with a bigger I don't know, step signs. I don't know what the term is. I never use AR process, but you, you know what I mean. And, yeah. and But you don't really know what the step size is. So that's where the GP is very helpful because it just determines the step size for you. And you can really see that public opinion doesn't vary that much, actually. It does vary, yeah. but it takes time. It takes, it takes time, weeks. Yeah. It doesn't take days. Yeah, okay. and that's where that's why the GPs are interesting here. Okay, and um, so a, a more general question now. I mean, uh, you see whether journalists love elections because they have many things to say about opinion polls all the time, and uh, if you had to explain to a journalist what statisticians can. <laughs> can teach them and can do for them what would that be yeah that's yeah that's a very hard question we'll have a harder one after this <laughs> perfect yeah no, easy questions are boring anyway so perfect. yeah yeah i pondered that question for years that's why i'm asking and and I know. like i don't know yet i think i think the intuitive patient course is actually helping me do that because i have a bias i have a bias towards technical explanations because I'm a nerd and I love learning about mm -hmm. the details of, okay, why is the GP important here? Why are hierarchical models amazing, especially for electoral forecasting? And what does it mean to pull information across parties and across time and so on? But I think most people don't care about that. <laughs> and so I should not talk about that when I talk with non-data people. So I think what's most interesting for journalists from these kind of models are the actionable part. So what can we say from the polls that we have seen right now? Like, can we actually say that this candidate is the favorite? What does it mean to be the favorite? How far ahead is he or is she? Is that latest candidate who just declared himself really a serious contender to the second round. You know, can you say that just after one poll and just educate people, people, which, which is something you do very well on our Twitter account on Pulse Position, which is like, yeah, but <laughs> we just had one poll about that. And remember all the uncertainties there are in polls because like not all people contacted answer 
then all not all the people who answered are gonna vote. Then all the people who say who are gonna vote are not certain of their choice. And after all that, all the people who say they are gonna vote, maybe they are not gonna vote. vote. <laughs> so the uncertainties are huge and and that's where it's another part that's very important. It's basically counterfactuals. Yeah. And Tell it. and so using plots as you're doing with these animated dot plots on the on the Twitter yeah. account, which gives you give you the counterfactuals of okay, let's consider that scenario. What would happen then? What would it take for that scenario to happen? And that's also where Bayesian stats are super interesting because this is just counting. And so you just plot the dots and each dot is a scenario. And once you have all the dots, you just count how many dots are in each bucket. And the more dots, the more probable the scenario. Yeah, that's what I think is the most important. I'm curious about, about what you're seeing on that. Like You have to remember what it took you to get where you are today in terms of learning. I mean, this may be easier for... I mean, think about yourself before you did political science and back in 2017, all the mental steps you had to climb to get to where you are in your understanding today. And I think that you need to make people, and I mean, it's difficult. I mean, look at the model that you came up with. It's even for someone who's a seasoned Bayesian modeler, this is quite something to, you know, it, it is a big model to digest and so on, you have it to was a simple PR. <laughs> it was 120 commits and, and, and 14 files. So it's, it was not that big. You can look at the PR and learn what not to do when you submit a PR. Yeah, yeah. It was Just, a very bad PR. You cannot say here's 20,000 lines of code. <laughs> Please yeah. review. You cannot say from that PR that I am actually an open source developer. <laughs> you cannot no, say that. It's a, you can because the code is uh, the code is clean. So, but no, you have to remember that you didn't get there from day one, and you have to take people's hands, I guess, take people's hand and be like, "Here is why we're doing this and why we're doing that." And so, indeed, we're pulling results from different polls, but there are uncertainties per poll already. So let's just explore this, and once you've understood this, let's go back and put different polls together and explain why this is a good thing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. I didn't have the same objectives when I started learning that also. That's because, as I was saying, I have a technical bias, which is like, I was actually very interested in how you get there, like how can these method work, methods work, like kind of an epistemological perspective, if you want, like, but like, how can we do that? And how does that work? How do you do that? I want to be able to do that and not just understand. And so understand the principles behind that and the, the statistics also. And that's how I transitioned actually from political science to statistics because the statistics is the method and you apply that method to different different fields. And so I'm more interested in the method than in the field actually. I like to apply the methods. So that was my perspective. But I, I don't think most people have that perspective at, at least for electoral forecasting. So you have to relate that really to the field and tell them, okay, that's what we can tell about that topic not about the stats stuff that I love, but they don't. I'm going I'm to take the example of the COVID or the, the COVID modeling and stuff yeah. that happened. What was very popular in the end was just simple charts. Mm. It was just showing people information and summarizing information. The best summary of information was the website or the Twitter account that became the most popular. And I think that this is what 
people mostly expect, but you have the tools to make very complicated stuff actually look very easy, right? Because what is the main thing that you're doing? So French elections are coming if people didn't know that. And the French presidential elections are coming in 2022, which is this year, actually, I just realized this. And uh, French elections are quite complicated compared to American elections. I mean, I guess this is arguable, you're the political scientist, but we have, I mean, talk to us about the political landscape in France, actually, and the elections and why. Do you yeah. think it's as difficult as to model as the U.S. elections or more difficult to model than the U.S. elections? And yeah. what are the main differences? What makes it more difficult? What makes it easier? Yeah. So what makes things more difficult in the U.S. is the Electoral College. The popular vote is super, super easy to, to forecast, basically. But the Electoral College makes things more complicated. But in France, the main difficulty is that the parties are not the same historically. So we don't have like two parties which are the same since the beginning of the 20th century. They change, mainly they change names. Like we also have to say that like, like they don't really, like it's rare that a party like really comes out of nowhere. It's always, it takes time and so on for parties to adapt and, and become new if you want. But you have different forces that you can rate on a spectrum from being from the far left to the far right and going through the right, center, left, uh, the Greens also, who are more, let's say, a bit more to the left of the political spectrum. Traditionally in France, it's not the same in all countries, but in France, it's mm -hmm. like that. And so that changes with time. So when you do modeling on that, you have to make choices and say, okay, that party is closer to the far left. So I'm going to consider it's in the same family as these other parties, like the Communist Party and so on. But the Communist Party doesn't exist anymore, like isn't really strong anymore as it was in the 70s and 80s. So what do I do? Like which party is now the left, left wing party, the far left wing party? These are the, I'd say complicated decisions, but it's not that complicated. It's if you want to think about that in a statistical way, it's let's say that you have families of parties and in the far left, you have distribution of party and each election a party is, is randomly drawn from that distribution, but that distribution is common to all the far left parties. So they are similar in their ideas, okay. although the people change and so on, but it's not that big of an effect. I know it's not very popular to say that because like most of the people in campaign coverage are like, oh yeah, like people are very important. Basically the candidates makes everything and so on. I don't really think that's true. If you, if yeah. you look at it at every, historically, it's not like a candidate is not, it's not that important. It's part of the solution of the process, but it's not the main, main process or the only one, I'd say. So you can put parties in some buckets, but this year is particularly, particularly interesting because, why? because the left first, the left party, the traditional left party now in France is like, almost non-existent. Yeah. And so that means that the left is like... And by non-existent, we mean what? 3% yeah, three intentions? To, three to 5%. Yeah. And, and, polls, yeah. and that means that you have all these different candidates on the left and also the far left candidate who are like, okay, what do we do? Like, it's it's really game theory. It's it's, it's super interesting. It actually, is, game, it is like, applied game theory. Like clearly <laughs> in our system, 
their optimal decision is to have one common candidate and go there with one common candidate. That's really how you can maximize your chance in our system. But they don't want to be the first one to withdraw from the race because then they lose any bargaining power in a potential future coalition. So nobody is withdrawing from the race. (laughs) And by doing that, they divide the vote and they are basically one by one inexistent, except for the most important one, who is Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So on the, on the far left in our model. But even then, like Mélenchon could, could get more votes if there was like just one candidate on the left. But they don't do that. And that's super, that's so, that's interesting to witness. But for the modeler, it's hard because like, what do we do? Although I think when you have candidates around 3%, it's not, it's not that important anymore from a modeling perspective. The most important is, is Mélenchon. And then on the right, on the far right, for the first time in French history, we have two candidates on the far right. And of course, here, the problem is the same. And on the far left, it's not optimal for the far right to do that. And they're scoring about the same. <laughs> yeah, it's like they are, it's the Condor, it's, you know, it's the Condorcet problem. Like Condorcet, like, had seen that already like centuries before us that in our system, if you divide the votes, you can end up with candidates elected, which are not the voice, the choice of the majority, but it's because the majority choice were split up between different candidates. And it's exactly what's happening. And the far right, it's exactly that. Like if you combine their two votes, it's about 30% right now. Yeah. But each of them is like around 15%. But that's interesting for the modeler because then we need to model these two candidates. These 15% is huge. So you cannot ignore them. And then the question is, what do we do with the second far-right candidate who is like completely new? And here, it's super interesting because your forecast will, will rely a lot on the prior because you have polls, so the prior will be updated with polls, but you only have three months of polls in the time, in the, in the election. So it's not that much. And then your prediction for that candidate almost only rely on the prior and the uncertainty should be much higher than for other candidates. Mm -hmm. But thankfully our model can draw on the history of past elections and the other parties and how they behave. And, and that should help to predict that, but that's still a huge statistical challenge. And I want to point out that people who will be telling you that they know what is going to happen and what this new candidate, Eric Zemmour, from the far right is going to have as a score are just telling you lies. You know, they know that or they don't know. They are telling you false things, but they are. Which is probably worse. (laughs) Nobody knows what's going to happen because it never happened. So you cannot really draw on any past experience or it's hard. You have to have a hierarchical model with priors that are chosen very carefully. And so anybody that tells you with certainty what's going to happen is just telling you his opinion. Yeah, I think the the biggest difficulty with French, if I need to summarize, the biggest uh, difficulty with the French elections is that you need a lot of expert knowledge to like... You can have a fancy model, but that model wouldn't be anything with the with the expert mo- with the expert knowledge. But the expert and knowledge I guess we're lucky own. to have the expert knowledge in that. <laughs> yeah, but the expert knowledge on its own it's not sufficient either. Yeah, so that's a that's a great that's a, so you've got both. So that that's great. And uh, so what do you think? So the model that you're working on post position is uh, 
It's basically a prediction model like 538 did. And I think it would be interesting for the listeners to go back and explain exactly what does it mean when we say that we predict the result of the election? Let's say six months from now, two months from now, and when really is it close to, when can you assume that it's going to be close to the actual result? So what does it mean to say that we forecast? Them? Yeah, so the the further you are from the election, the more the model is relying on the historical forecast. So it's basically saying, okay, in the absence of any data, I'm going to assume that what's going to happen is going to be pretty much similar to what already happened in the past. So if the election is not completely different from history, you can get a pretty decent forecast just already based on that. The model I have, we have already here in production, I ran it like three, two, one month before the elections of mm-hmm. 2017. And already three months before the elections, you could have a decent, a decent prediction of what would happen, which is encouraging because the 2017 elections were kind of peculiar because the center party, which is Emmanuel Macron's party, which was a completely new party, but still you could put that in the bucket of the center party. In the center, yeah. Like the model was already very good at, at predicting what its results would be three months before the election, although with, of course, a lot of uncertainty. So that's what we mean when we predict the election, the election results is like the further you are, the more it relies on historical data and the further in the, the closest you are to election day, then the more important polls become. And then the model has less time to revert to the historical mean. I mean, uh, just for the for the listeners who are not familiar with this kind of model, what do you mean with similar to what we saw in historical data? Like, how do you pull this history in your model? Like, how do you include that history in your model? Because I think everyone can can understand how you aggregate polls together to get a trend line. Everyone does that. But how do you include this historical information in your model? Yeah, so it's basically a huge correlation machine. So we have all the results from past elections and we have a structure in the model which relates each elections to the elections to each other. And then the, the model sees all that data. But And then, and then its job is to estimate the timeline of the election and do a backwards walk from election day to where we are right now. So for instance, three months before the election mm-hmm. and try to infer what that timeline will look like. And the way it can do that is we have the results of past elections and we have all the polls from past elections. So we can learn yeah. from that and we do it and also the way we pass that information from an election to another is, as I was saying, each timeline is modeled by a Gaussian process, Mm -hmm. but each election and each party has its own Gaussian process, but each of these elections is then pulled to a higher level Gaussian process for each party. And that means that basically it's saying, the model is saying each party kind of has its inherent timeline, no matter the election. Like parties, some parties tend to be very 
stable, like the far right party, for instance, its support is usually very stable. Mm -hmm. The right party really stable too. Whereas the left party, the center party, the far left party, they tend to be much more versatile and, mm -hmm. and their, their support can change much faster during the election than the other parties. So the model needs to know that and to learn that so that in, in the new election where we don't have, we just have the new polls and we don't know how the timeline is going to mm -hmm. look, then when it does prediction, it's able to say, okay, so that party historically has been pretty stable and yeah, so I think it's going to stay stable until that date. But that party has been very, not very unstable. And so I need a, a bigger standard deviation on that, on that prediction, basically. Yeah. And I, I guess the thing that it took me a while to understand was uh, the way you can predict the result is because elections is this idea. I think Gelman talks a lot about it, is that the results of the elections is actually very predictable. And mm -hmm. I don't think he's the only one to say that, but it's very predictable from fundamental data, like uh, unemployment, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's GDP like, growth or anything like that. And so you use that model, you model that and the score of each party, uh, depending on these variables. And then knowing these variables at this point in time, you can just make that forecast for the election. And there's this idea that the opinions, the intentions, the voting intentions might be different today, but it's just because the opinion is taking a long time to reach. I, I like this idea <laughs> that the opinion just like, you know, just doing its, rent, not its random walk, but just like, you know, yeah, just yeah. going towards where it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the idea is that is, uh, as I was saying, candidates don't matter that much. Elections matter, but they, I see them as just an offset from latent reality. Like imagine there is like, just <laughs> okay. a, they are just like a latent, you know, support for each party that exists in the matrix. And so yeah. for each election, which is a given timeline, so three months of election campaign, you can already do that no matter the election. You can already say, usually the left right, the left party behaves that way, the Green Party behaves that way, and so on. So you can already do that. It's like a latent, non, non-existent in the matrix, you know, just, just that as a baseline timeline. And then you add an offset, which is related to the election, like when, when that happens in the world, then it's an offset. It's a realization of that, of that object. And it's like you have the class, you know, the Python class, but then you have the yeah. Python, the object of that class is the election. And it's just, it's a variation around, around that baseline, around that class, but it's still that class. Say you have one minute with every one of you, so I'm going to time it. You have one minute with a random Twitter follower of your account. How do you explain to them? Yeah. So that depends what they ask me at the question, actually. But I won't, I won't enter into those levels of detail and so on. Some people do ask, but what does far left mean? You know, and then, then I enter into the details we talked about, which are, yeah, well, I know you think that parties are very important, but it's not something I see in the data, basically, like parties are actually quite stable and you can have like a plat an idea of what a far left party is, no matter what the name of the party and the, I the identity of the candidate. That's why I would say, but yeah, basically I, I, I almost never enter in the details of the model unless prompted 
I'm okay. I focus on the results. And what if people say, oh, all the models are wrong? Yeah, well, then you say it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but look at the alternative. But how do you convince them that it's useful? That's the, that's the question. Is that, you yeah. know, people just, you know, have seen many, many models that were very, very wrong about many things. I mean, thinking yeah. of COVID, for instance, some models were made that were made public were just, you know, obviously wrong. Some, um, I mean, I'm not going to answer the question, but how would you go about someone telling you this, like your model your model is useless. All models are wrong. Therefore, your model is useless. Yeah, I try to dig into into the motivation of that person because it's a very nihilistic thing to say. And then I would try to understand why he's saying that or she's saying that because, like, it's true. Like all models are wrong. But what's a model? Like, because what's the alternative? Okay, is the alternative just everybody says what he wants and what he thinks and we all put everything on the same level at the same level mm -hmm. and every everybody is right and there is no hierarchy in how you came up to that way of thinking because like then everything is wrong and everything is relative basically and there is no hierarchy between someone who came to an opinion that that was through a method so a scientific method that's been tested for centuries now and that that sheet works that's how we fly that's how we can come up with vaccines and that's how we die less and somebody who just like thinks like lets basically his mouth say anything that his brain comes up thinking that every idea is every each one of his ideas are great so that would be that first let's look at the alternative is that the alternative you want and second, what the opinions in your head are a model, like they are a simplification of the world. Nobody mm -hmm. sees the world exactly as it is. Mm -hmm. And so what you're telling me without a quantitative model is already a model. It, it's just a model with just priors. And your priors mm -hmm. are very bad because they are not even explicit. So you, everybody has a model, but our model at least is explicitly on GitHub and also we can update it with the data because we put that on the computer. I think, yeah, that was an answer to someone who was like, oh, these guys are not serious, blah, 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 blah. Don't follow them. And we're like, well, you know what? People can just look at the code and the math of the model and just make their own opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good thing is, yeah, probably. But, but the, yeah, but the point is, yeah, that everybody has a model in his head. It's just that it's not the reality that you have in your head. It's a prior structure, yeah, but you haven't explicited it. And you are not able to, to update it because we are all biased individu individually and we don't want to update our priors when the posterior would say that we were wrong or that it's an idea that we don't like. And also it's very hard to do that for our brain. Like we're very bad at, at math basically and computing and we should just we're like the computer is better at updating that prior than us with the data. Yeah. So it's all that to say that, yeah, Bayesian statistics in the, in the real world is, uh, in yeah. the wild is, uh, is complicated. Uh, I guess modeling is complicated in general, especially in politics where people get pretty worked up very quickly about basically anything. You'll always find someone who wants to, who will threaten to kill you for mm, yeah. whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you're not rooting for their candidate. Yeah. It's something that, like I often 
remind people this is hard shit. It's just like yeah. it's super hard <laughs> and kind of nobody knows what he's doing, but you just you try to do you try. something. Yeah. And when it did fades, you see a difference? Did it change the perception of people or not that you've interacted with, like between 2017 and 2022? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are more people more receptive or on the contrary, more like have more doubts? Yeah, no, no. I find people at least much more curious about statistical modeling than in 2017. In 2017, there were only two of us doing that and we were the weirdos on the block and people didn't really <laughs> understand why we we're doing that because it's super easy to to forecast elections or or stuff like that, or just people didn't understand the why quantitatively modeling some, something is important. Now, people are much more receptive, I think for at least two reasons, just just the sense of history. Data science is much more prevalent everywhere now, including yeah. in, in newspapers, redactions, newsrooms, sorry, in, in newspapers, newsrooms. So people are more exposed just to data and models, and they have these phones in their pockets, which are supercomputers, basically, and data is everywhere, and statistics are everywhere. And the second reason is COVID. <laughs> like, COVID oh, yeah. was awesome for okay, us. Okay, interesting. Yeah. COVID was awesome for us because it exposed people to complex data, to testing, which is like like perfect for Bayesian stats, right? Like I mean, it was it was real world epidemiology. Yeah, it, hey, and it, it was, was like I talked about that with David Spiegel Halter in episode four, in episode fifteen. Yeah, that wrote was, a book about this. Yeah, yeah, and that a very interesting book. That was awesome because well, it exposed people to modeling and the fact that modeling is incredibly hard. But it's because the world is incredibly complicated <laughs> and there is no easy answer. And just like putting your like your head in the in the wind, you know, in, in, in French, we have that expression. You just like the wet thumb and then you just have the direction yeah. of the wind and then you just say that. It's not good. It's not what you want. <laughs> if you it's a well to say well guess, yes. Exactly. Yeah. And and in a way the the pandemic was a great way to put that in check. Like the countries who first did completely stupid stuff, were hit incredibly hard. And then we all started to understand that we need scientific the scientific method to get rid of that of that virus. So that helped us a lot, <laughs> I have to say. I mean then we got the opposite as well. Uh, I guess we got I mean what I see among the so it's more true among the more educated people, but people who don't have a massive background in science is the most skeptical approach to uh, science actually i've seen uh, i've seen many people who were oh yeah epidemiologists were completely wrong and science is bullshit and it's like well first of all yes <laughs> <laughs> yes in the sense all every science like every almost every science that makes a prediction that is not physics or you know that is not something that makes predictions about something very simple like a uh, physical phenomenon I said that as a physicist, uh, it's very simple. Like we'll make mistakes. I find that you have this double tendency of like, people who've never really been exposed to models now are like, oh wow, people can do that and it's not that bad. And then you have people who expect, who are vaguely familiar, but expected perfection yeah. modelers and from science, but who are like discovering the, I mean, rediscovering the truth about science because it's something that, if you look at philosophy of science, it's not a new idea. Yeah, yeah. It's that, it's that, yeah, we're screwed because the world is very complicated. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's exactly that. Like the tolerance for failure we have against uh, towards computer is 
extremely low compared to the tolerance for failure we have for uh, humans. It's just not, and and you can see that in you know automated planes or cars. You know, it's like people expect absolutely no accident from that. Well, no, it's like the huge expectations. They hope that they think that poles are perfect. Well, no, and. But again, look at the alternative. It's not. It's not as if humans were perfect drivers, and even yeah. if, <laughs> computers have less accidents than than human drivers. Well, then maybe it's interesting to look into that. So what I find super interesting now is that this is at least something we discuss more, and that people have in mind that the human brain is, is an amazing machine, but it has its own weaknesses, especially when it comes to decision making and uncertainty, and that we probably need to be helped with that. That's pretty cool. So yeah, it's, it's true that uh, today people look, seem to be more interested into this, uh, this modeling stuff thanks to COVID. And so what are you particularly excited about this project for this year? Like, what, what is your dream scenario? You know, what is, what do you hope to be able to do is a better, is a better question, but better way to phrase it, I guess. Of course, for position, I hope the model will be, will be good. And the best scenario would be that poles are off in some way huh, that yeah. the model can anticipate and the model will not be lured by those polling errors. That'd be the best because <laughs> then they will show pe- that well, it would show people that even best, even better would be that the poles are off in a way that favors novelty because that will be super appealing to people because we love novelty you know and so yeah what would be awesome is that the polls overestimate zemmour for instance so the second okay. the second far-right and candidate and so that way like people will be like oh my god is he gonna <gasps> be, is he gonna be at the second round and so on but in any case i think it's gonna be very close like the results yeah. are gonna be very close and so you need uncertainty estimation and also you need past elections and history to guide you here and good priors. And people here basically don't have priors. They are all behaving, you know, like uh, frequentist, oh. uh, like completely flat, flat priors. And, and they just look at the data and, and the polls. Yeah, and that, that would be, be pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome because then the model, he it, it would be more conservative. And so it would be lured much less by the current data and the, the, the bias in the polls. And it would be able to have kind of a contrarian view of saying, yeah, people like just calm down usually history tends to repeat itself and so keep in mind the uncertainties and so on and kind of everything can happen or this scenario is still just is a plausible scenario but not not that much and that so that would be the best because then that would show to people the benefit of modeling the benefit of drawing from history yeah. and from prior knowledge and that polls are not perfect and they are noisy. And also listeners have to know that French people love to hate polls. So that would be also, that's a very French answer as well. It's just saying, yeah. I hope that polls are wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they will be wrong. They're always wrong. Exactly. Because then it's, it's a tragedy of being pollsters is that you are always wrong. Exactly. But it's fine as long as they're wrong in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was a uh, very interesting, but we're gonna have to wrap up. I'm gonna let you go about your life, and I'm going to ask you two questions. I ask every guest at the end of my show. Mm. <laughs> that's awesome. I didn't, uh, I didn't know about that, but that's wow. That's a cool idea. Well done. Okay. Yeah. If you had unlimited time and resources. 
Which problem would you try to solve? Damn, it's a hard one. I know. Yeah. When, when, when you've never thought about it, it's a very hard one. No, very original question too, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, so that one, of course, super hard, but that would be education to the scientific method. <laughs> I think we talked about that like already here. Okay. You can see it's something. How, like, at what scale, how would you go about that? Like, what, what do you think is the biggest, like, what are the low-hanging fruits? Yeah, so... I think the lowest hanging fruit is making people less intimidated by science and math and physics. And the way to do that is to, can you say narrate? And I think a good way to do that is to narrate the history of science, like to, to remind people that science is not something dry. It's not equations. It's people who came up with those equations with huge struggles with themselves first, because of course, scientists have egos and they wanted to be recognized and not be forgotten. And there were struggles between them. And that's a great thing that Aubrey Clayton does in his book is yeah. to put back the context and the socio-political context of frequency statistics and Bayesian statistics at the time. And, to, and also because these people have great, like have interesting lives. Uh, you know, so, and explaining how Einstein came up with relativity and, you know, that he was working as a public servant in Bern at the, in Bern, yeah. yeah, at the Bureau of, I don't know the word in English. Patents. Yeah, patents. Sir, thanks. The Bureau of Patents. And he came up with those ideas and that's amazing. And the life of Newton, the life of all those, those scientists who contributed these equations that we know today and that we use and that help us in our lives, but helping people understand that it's not uncommon for science to have struggles and, and ego struggles and to make mistakes as we're seeing right now, like we, with COVID, we saw basically science in the making that was research that we saw. So like research is very messy. But then after research is gone, you have science. Science is the scientific knowledge that we got through research. But to get through that, to get to that, you have to go through a process of enormous struggles and self-doubts and fights between people. And I think it's a way to make people more interested because you relate basically to the life of someone. You know, you don't relate to an equation. You relate to someone who struggled to get to that equation. And I think that's a good way to do that. So that would be for a new podcast, uh, learning yeah. scientific method. <laughs> I, 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 honestly, if I had unlimited time and resources, is- that probably would be a second podcast I would make, like telling the life of, of scientists, like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be... I would definitely listen to that. Yeah, me too. And then the, the second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind that is dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? I think I know the answer, but tell me. That's a good question. Yeah, so that one is super hard. The first one I answered that question was in episode zero. And I said, I know. I said Condorcet. So I'm going to change now. Although I'm still going to pick someone from the kind of the same time. That would be Pierre Simon Laplace. So French mathematician, genius mathematician. And I think he did some physics also, right? Uh, He did. uh, Yeah, he did. Yeah. I mean, he was a genius. I mean, at the time they knew everything. Yeah. So... And he is like basically the, the father of Bayesian stats. He really understood. So first he rediscovered Bayes' theorem on his own, was very disappointed when D'Alembert, so his mentor, told him, ah, you know, that stuff actually we like 
was already discovered, apparently. So he was actually very depressed to learn that. You know, it's incredible to think that it's Laplace like, oh. would be depressed, you know. But then he wasn't depressed for long because he understood the implications of that formula and developed all Bayesian, the, the, the framework, the whole framework of Bayesian stats. So I think that would be super interesting to have dinner with him. And also he had an interesting life. He didn't, ca- he didn't come from privileged background. He came from a very a, a poor family from somewhere in France in the countryside and was just incredibly good at math and had the chance to go to, the, to school. And there his math teacher was impressed by him and talked about him to people in Paris and he got... He got a grant to go to Paris, and that's where D'Alembert, who was like a superstar at the time, took him under his mentorship. And so, yeah, that's like, must be an interesting life. I'd like to, to learn more about him. Cool. All right. Well, Alex, thank you for coming on my show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, as usual, I put the, you know, all the links in the show notes. Uh, very interesting stuff, post-position, the open source work, etc. And uh, well, thank you again for coming. And uh, thank you talk again. To you soon. Yeah, thank you again for inviting me, and I'll be glad to be back on the show anytime. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.